Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to better serve and to strengthen your communities to get better at what you do? And uh, thanks so much for the feedback, you guys. Uh, police, sheriff, fire marshals, detectives, investigators, state police, you guys have all given great feedback. And I am trying continuously to make this podcast useful for you. Talk about new cases, new laws. And last week, we talked about the new search warrant statute that took effect on March the 1st and sort of uh, really last minute actually took took effect uh, just after March 1st, just as uh, the search warrant statute from the fall, from the special session was about to take effect, the governor stepped in and signed Senate Bill 1475, which had been passed unanimously by both the House and the Senate in Virginia and fixed a lot of the issues. So now that it's taken effect, and now that it is the law in Virginia, uh, we've gotten a lot of questions. And what I thought I would do today in the podcast is go through some of those frequently asked questions that people have raised about uh, the new law, about Senate Bill 1475, now that it's law, it's been law for about a week now, and see if I can kind of uh, help you guys navigate just sort of what are the common issues that come up in implementing this law. Um, to start with, I think one of the most basic questions is, uh, is where is the law? Um, a lot of people are accustomed to going online and looking at the law on the Virginia Code website. Uh, there is this uh, statute, if you type, you know, if you Google Code of Virginia, it'll take you to this website, which is the LIS, the Legislative Information System website. Uh, it's law.lis.virginia.gov, S as in Sam, lis.virginia.gov. And uh, that's where you find the Virginia Code. And that's where we look up, you know, all sorts of code sections. So I will tell you that if you look up, even today, after the law has taken effect, if you look up 19.2-56, which is the code section that changed, you will find the code section that was enacted in the fall that was supposed to take effect on March 1. You're not going to find the code section that's actually the law right now, which is Senate Bill 1475. So in other words, if you look this up online, you're going to find the wrong language. You're going to find the wrong code section. You're going to find something that's not the law. And uh, so which raises an interesting question, I think, you know, for law enforcement, and actually, honestly, for about 99.9% of attorneys, I think a lot of people don't know this, but the law as it appears online isn't really the law. It is somebody's version of it. It is, a, it is a publicly shared copy of most of the law, but it's not the official version of the Virginia Code. The official version of the Virginia Code appears in something called the Acts of Assembly. And these are books that compile the acts, the actual written pieces of legislation that have been signed and enacted by the judge. And these acts go into books. The books are not the books that your prosecutor's office has on their shelves. They're not the books that you would find in most law libraries or in most public libraries. They are um, books full of longer code sections than you're accustomed to seeing. The Virginia Code Commission then decides among those acts and assemblies, what are they going to publish? What are they going to show to people? And those contain the language that most everybody needs to know. But uh, for example, budget bills. Budget bills don't appear in the Virginia Code, but they are passed by the General Assembly and they are law. You just don't see them because, of course, they change every few years. The budget bills, though, oftentimes have you know, important provisions in them. 
uh, that do affect law and policy. And so you might not see them if you look them up online in the code. You have to look up the acts of assembly. And oftentimes, uh, laws that have been passed by the General Assembly have along with them things called enactment clauses. The marijuana bill, the expungement bill, and so on have enactment clauses so that when they show up in the Virginia Code or when they show up online, you may not see this, but there will be a, a provision that says, you know, this law expires on this date, or this law must be reenacted every year by the General Assembly or next year by the General Assembly to become law and that kind of thing. So these are parts of the law that you never see and that honestly most lawyers never see. And again, honestly, I don't think most lawyers are aware that that's really the true source of the law. So 19.256 was amended by Senate Bill 1475 the moment the governor signed it. It had an emergency enactment clause, which meant it took effect immediately. But the people who are in charge of the website, the people who are in charge of the code books and so on, they haven't yet gotten to putting it up online and making it available to everybody. And that process takes a little while. It sometimes takes a few weeks. It sometimes takes a few months. So when is it going to be that uh, that this code section will be updated online. I don't know. Uh, we're hoping it'll take place soon. I have checked into it to see, you know, hey, you guys need to update this. Uh, and they are certainly aware that they need to update it. But it is a process, and so it's taking place. Um, another question that comes on, uh, that, that comes up a lot. So again, let's talk about what this code section says, right? Um, the code section that was enacted by the General Assembly and is now law, right? Senate Bill 1475 says no law enforcement officer shall seek, execute, or participate in the execution of a no-knock search warrant. That's the first line, right? And that's a pretty clear line. It's, it's It governs not just search warrants issued under 19.256, it governs all law enforcement officers, right? And that language, no law enforcement officer shall seek, execute, or participate in the execution of a no-knock search warrant. That language covers all Virginia law enforcement officers, whether they're covering, whether they're uh, executing a search warrant under this code section, a search warrant under another code section, or indeed a federal search warrant. And so some people have asked, well, what if I'm on a federal task force? Well, if you're a Virginia law enforcement officer, this code section prohibits you from engaging in or participating in a no-knock search warrant, even if you're doing it as part of a federal task force. You simply can't do it. Can the federal task force do one? Sure, because Virginia law can't override federal law. And so federal law is supreme. So um, certainly uh, federal officers who are just federal officers and not Virginia law enforcement could do that. And this code section doesn't seem to prohibit a federal officer from bringing evidence from that federal search warrant into a Virginia court, but it does govern all Virginia law enforcement officers and prevent them under any circumstances, even if it is a federal warrant, from helping or assisting in the execution of a no-knock search warrant. Uh, the Next line in the code section also brings up a question that I've gotten a lot. So the next line in the code section says, a search warrant for any place of abode authorized under this section shall require that a law enforcement officer be recognizable and identifiable as a uniformed law enforcement officer. So this line has raised a lot of questions because the question is, does that mean that everybody who's on the uh, team who's executing the search warrant has to be identifiable. Well, this code, this language seems to imply that 
a law enforcement officer needs to be recognizable and identifiable as a uniformed law enforcement officer. It doesn't seem to require that all law enforcement officers be recognizable and identifiable as law enforcement officers. So you could have members of your team who are in uniform and members of your team who are not in uniform. The key is uh, that they be recognizable and identifiable. And what that means is if you have, you know, let's say you have 10 people on a search warrant execution team, if only one of them is in uniform, the question is when somebody answers the door, when somebody looks out the window, when somebody, you know, peeks around to see who's knocking at my door, will that person see the uniformed officer? Will they be recognizable and identifiable as law enforcement if they are looking out? And uh, so if you only have one person, that's going to reduce the likelihood that somebody's going to be able to recognize and identify they have a law enforcement officer. So it probably makes sense to have many uniformed officers on the scene so that it's clear to anyone uh, that this is law enforcement engaging in a search warrant and not just a bunch of people trying to break into a house. Can there be people on the team who are not in uniform? I don't see why there couldn't. I, I don't see why not. I, I don't see any reason why you you can't have a mix. It seems to be that you could have a mix of officers who are in uniform and not not in uniform. That would be okay. But that's another question that a lot of people have asked. Um, another question that people have asked about the uniform is: Does that mean that the officer who is serving the warrant? the actual officer who's the one who's actually like the officer serving the warrant, that that has to be the officer wearing a uniform. And again, the code section doesn't seem to say that. It says that the search warrant for a place of abode shall require that a law enforcement officer be recognizable and identifiable as a uh, uniformed law enforcement officer. So it doesn't seem to require that that be the person who serves the warrant. The person who's serving it could be somebody else, could be a detective maybe who's in plain clothes. And the requirement also here continues, a, uh, the off, a, a law enforcement officer needs to be recognizable and identifiable, and that has to be the officer who provides audible notice of his authority and purpose, reasonably designed to be heard by the occupants of such place to be searched prior to the execution of the warrant. So the officer who's in uniform uh, needs to give audible notice of his authority and purpose, reasonably designed to be heard by the occupants. Other people can also give um Audible notice, is anything wrong with multiple people uh, giving audible notice? Uh, but you need uh, at least have one person who's in uniform giving notice. That, again, though, doesn't have to be the person who is serving the warrant. It could be uh, somebody else, uh, you know, a patrol officer that you brought, for example, to be your uniformed officer. But they need to make sure that they're giving audible notice. Um so another question, a whole set of questions has come up about obtaining one of these warrants. Um, and when you obtained it, if you have if you have gotten it sealed by the judge, what are you supposed to do with that sealed affidavit? Because the next line in the code section says, after entering and securing the place to be searched, and prior to undertaking any search or seizure pursuant to the search warrant, the executing law enforcement officer shall give a copy of the search warrant and affidavit to, <clears throat> and then when the person that you give it to, it depends on who you give it to. So if it's a person that you're searching, right, let's say I'm at a jail and I'm doing DNA, right, there I'm just going to give the affidavit, the, cop, the search warrant and the affidavit to the person in the jail. I don't have to give it to everybody in the jail, right, because I'm just searching the person, so I'm just going to give it to the person in the jail. If I'm searching a place, then I give a copy of the warrant and the affidavit to the owner, 
if the owner of the place that was in present, let's say it's a rental and this uh, being rented by somebody, then I give a copy to any occupant of the place to be searched. And to start with, a lot of people have asked about this language, any occupant of the place to be searched. Doesn't it, does it mean one or does it mean many? In Virginia law, any has been interpreted by the courts in the past to mean all. That doesn't mean that your judge is going to agree with that. The judge in your case might say, no, I think in this case any only means one. But uh, you need to be careful because unless you know that's how your judge is going to rule, you need to make sure that you've covered yourself uh, until you find out how your judge is going to interpret this. And that, to me, would mean that you give out copies of the warrant and the affidavit to every occupant. And again, it just says occupant. It doesn't say adult occupant or English-speaking occupant. So if it's a baby, you give it to a baby. Why? Because the code says. But what's the consequence if I don't? Well, all the evidence gets suppressed. Why? Because the General Assembly says so. Um, it doesn't have to be a logical reason for it. They wrote the code section this way. They can mean what they want to mean. They can make whatever rules they want to. This is a rule of evidence. It's not a rule of the Fourth Amendment. So remember here, they're not changing what the Fourth Amendment requires. The Fourth Amendment remains the same. Uh, they're just ch setting up a, a rule of evidence in Virginia, and they can make the rules of evidence to be whatever they want to be. But again, that begs the question, a lot of times we get our affidavit sealed. So what happens when the affidavit is sealed? Uh, how does, you know, do you give the affidavit to the person inside or do you uh, not give the affidavit to the people who are inside? Well, here, this is a problem. Uh, and, and I'll just tell you that this is a problem you're going to have to work on with your local prosecutors. So Virginia Code 19.254 says that an affidavit uh, and any warrant issued pursuant thereto, any return made of, and any order sealing the affidavit warrant or return may be temporarily sealed for a specific period of time by the appropriate court upon application of the attorney for the Commonwealth for good cause shown in an ex parte hearing. And 19.256, which is the code section that they amended, but they didn't amend this section, which says the judge, magistrate, or other official authorized to issue criminal warrants shall attach a copy of the affidavit as required, which becomes part of the search warrant and becomes served therewith. However, this provision shall not be applicable in any case in which the affidavit is made by means of voice or videotape recording or where the affidavit has been sealed pursuant to 19.254. So here again, there's a conflict, right? Uh, it, 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 the affidavit normally becomes part of the search warrant and gets served with the search warrant, except that it should does, that provision doesn't apply when the affidavit has been sealed. But that provision isn't what the General Assembly added. They added this other provision earlier on, this new language that says you shall serve a copy of the warrant and the affidavit. So the law just, it says contradictory things. And when the law says contradictory things, it puts courts in a difficult position because the court has to kind of figure out what the meaning is or determine what the General Assembly must mean. And a lot of people, again, have been working with their prosecutor's offices and their judges to figure out how to navigate this. You know, if I were a judge, of course, and, you know, I mean, you can see what side of the, you know, the things I'm on, right? If I'm a judge, I'm going to think that this, I think that the sealing order uh, overrides and says, you know, if I've sealed an affidavit, that means the affidavit shouldn't go to the people inside the house. Um, and your judges might agree with that. Um, you know, hopefully judges will be smart. Judges will make the right decision. And throughout the Commonwealth, judges will say when an affidavit is sealed, you don't give a copy of it to everybody in the house. 
But that's not necessarily the law, right? A judge could theoretically rule otherwise. And so you and your prosecutors are going to have to figure out, do I trust my judges to do the right thing? Or do I, am I concerned that my judges are going to read this language literally and enforce, enforce what it literally says? And if they do, then I'm going to lose my case, right? You don't want that to happen. I've seen some people actually put in their sealing orders uh, that the judge rules that um, the judge rules that uh, the sealing that this that the, by sealing the affidavit that provision uh, overrides the new language in in, in 1926 and, and says you don't have to serve the warrant and the affidavit together. Um, and that's kind of a neat way around it, right? So you have a judge, a judge make sort of a pre-judging issue, right? Or ruling ahead of time that you don't have to serve uh, the affidavit when you serve the warrant. So it's an interesting problem. Uh, and unfortunately, it's very challenging for you. Uh, and, and we can't give you a clear answer until we have a clear answer from your courts. And so far, nobody's had that issue come up. Nobody's had the off, uh, court challenge it. So we're just waiting to see what, what judges will do. You do have to go to a judge if you want to, if you, so if, if I'm getting a search warrant and I'm executing that warrant between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., the new, the new code section really doesn't have any effect on that, right? I can just go to a magistrate, get a warrant, serve it between 8 and 5, uh, and I just go about my business normally, right? Um, and again, if I'm doing a search warrant for Facebook records or Verizon or Google or hospital records or... I'm doing a search warrant for a person, uh, for DNA, all those types of things. I'm just going to go to a magistrate and go about my business the same way that I would have back in February or January. Nothing has changed. The one area where the law has really changed ha is search warrants for abodes, for dwellings. And this is where people have a lot of confusion. Uh, and it's search warrants for dwellings abodes under 19.256, which is not all, codes, all search warrants. It's, it's most search warrants, but it's not all of them. So the confusion comes in because it says that I have to make initial entry between 8 and 5 p.m. And if I'm going to make entry after 5 p.m., then I need a judge's authorization, right? So that's pretty straightforward rule. But it also says that if it's already after 5, so in other words, the court is closed, and I need to go do a search right now, I don't have to go to a judge. I can go to a magistrate, right? So it's a law enforcement officer shall make reasonable efforts to locate a judge before seeking authorization to execute the warrant at another time, unless circumstances require the issuance of the warrant after 5 p.m., in which case uh, you can make you can get authorization from a magistrate without first making reasonable efforts to locate a judge. So it's Thursday night, and it's 6 or 7 o'clock at night, and you've had a murder, or a sexual assault or something, and, and you need to get into this house and you need to execute a search warrant, then this allows you to just go straight to the magistrate and get an affidavit. But you still need to explain in the affidavit um, what the circumstances are that require the warrant to be issued after five, right? And why it is that you um, need to enter, why it is that you can't wait until the next day to execute that warrant. And there's lots of different reasons why, right? And we talked about them in the last episode, so I'm not going to go over them again. But, you know, destruction of evidence, uh, somebody's at large, threat to the safety of public, threat to the safety of officers, and so on. Um, you know, if you if you have to secure this place until the next day, the people might want to return to their home, right? And you might want to say, hey, look, 
I just want to let these people come back into their house, right? I need to search this place for evidence, but there's people who live here and they're going to want to go to sleep. They don't have another place to go. Why don't we just get this search over with and let them come back in? That might be a reason why you want to get this search done. But if it's already after 5 p.m. when the issue arises where, hey, look, I need to get into this house, then you can go straight to the magistrate. But you need to articulate that. And you need to articulate why you can't wait till tomorrow. So when would it be that you'd have to get a judge to authorize uh, execution after 5 p.m., right? That's a question that a lot of people have. Well, then why would I ever go to a judge, right? But remember that this applies on holidays, on uh, weekends, on days that the court is closed, right? So if it's Christmas Day and it's 10 o'clock in the morning and you're getting a search warrant, if you're going to be able to serve that search warrant before 5 p.m. on Christmas Day, then you just go to a magistrate and you're fine. But if it's Christmas Day and you have a homicide and you figure out who the perpetrator is and it's four in the afternoon and you know I'm not going to get to the perpetrator's house before the sun goes down, before 5 p.m., excuse me, before 5 p.m., 5 p.m. is the rule, not sun going down. Uh, I'm not going to get to the perpetrator's house before 5 p.m. I'm, if it's daytime, I'm going to need to go get my judge to give me authorization uh, to execute my warrant after 5 p.m. Because I can't go to a magistrate first, right? Uh, I have to at least try to find a judge. Now, again, if it's, let's say, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's Christmas Day, right? I have an on-call. They only gave me one on-call judge, and I call him, and he's like, I ain't coming out. I ain't meeting with you. I'm with my family. It's Christmas. Go to a magistrate. Well, that's my effort, right? Um, and, you know, the judges, the circuit court judges, the general court judges, JDR court judges decided there would be one judge. They told me who the judge would be. They said, don't call anybody else. Call this one on-call judge. Uh, here's the email that they sent or here's the letter that they sent about who to call and what the protocol is. I tried and that's what they told me to do. So that's my reasonable effort to find a judge. Now I can go to a magistrate. If you don't have a procedure in place, though, and you have, you know, three circuit court judges and three JDA court judges, three general court judges, reasonable efforts might be I have to go down that list of all those judges and call all of them. So again, hopefully by now your prosecutors and your judges have sat down together and come up with a protocol. How are you going to be reaching out to people on nights, and, I mean, excuse me, on holidays and weekends? Because holidays and weekends between 8 and 5, you're expected to go to a judge. So, you know, again, the issue is going to be I'm going to, I'm going to a magistrate to get authorization to enter at night when it's already after 5. That's when I would do that. Um, the other situation where I might go to a magistrate to get authorization uh, to execute a search warrant after 5 p.m. is where I've already entered and secured, right? Law enforcement officers have already entered and secured for some reason. Maybe the reason is I've made a consent entry um, and then I went in and discovered evidence and so I secured the property. Or on the other hand, uh, maybe it was an exigent circumstance. There was a shooting or something like that and I entered the property. It was a shooting at, at seven o'clock at night and I made an exigent entry, I secured the place, and then now I need to get a search warrant. In that situation, right, I can go to the magistrate and just say, hey, look, we're already in here, we've already entered, we've already secured. You need to articulate that in your affidavit. You need to make clear, we already entered and secured, we entered and secured at 6.53 p.m. Uh, because of the, you know, exigency of the shooting and the person who needed help or whatever. And, uh, and then we, um, we secured the property and then stepped out and got a search warrant. Um, the, the last question that I want to talk about today, and then we'll wrap up the last sort of frequently asked question is I've gotten a lot of questions, uh, this week, interestingly about fires and fire marshals and what happens in the case of, 
uh, search warrants for fire investigations. So I do want to talk about that a little bit with you guys today because the law about that is somewhat interesting. Um, of course, when you are making an entry in the case of a fire, you're not getting a warrant, right? You're kicking the door in or you're smashing your way in or maybe the door is already open and you're fighting a fire. And once you're inside dealing with this fire, whether it's a small kitchen fire or whether the whole house is, is, is engulfed in flames, uh, at some point, hopefully you get the, the fire under control but you're still in the house, right? And that's usually firefighters. Hopefully law enforcement officers are not in the house fighting the fire along with the firefighters, right? Hopefully they're not doing that. But firefighters are government officers and they are governed by the Fourth Amendment. Now they're in there on an exigent circumstance and they can continue to remain there uh, to investigate not just whether or not there's extension, whether or not there's fire somewhere else that's you know, behind the walls, uh, in the floors, whatever but also to determine cause and origin, right? Because if whatever the cause and origin of this fire is, is still there, when they leave, that same cause and origin may, may cause the fire to come back. So they can remain on the scene until the cause and origin is determined. Now there's two things to know about this. One is uh, law enforcement, police, sheriffs can, can go in the shoes of a fire official. So they can follow in behind firefighters and go anywhere that the firefighters are lawfully allowed to go. And so that means that if, again, firefighters are going to be smashing holes in walls, uh, maybe to look for extension, they're going to be looking, you know, opening up, um, you know, electrical panels and looking in the garage and so on to see what's the cause and origin of this fire. Uh, law enforcement officers can go there, but you couldn't just, it's not just like the whole house is an open book and you can search anywhere, right? You can't open up books and read papers and so on. That's not really part of a cause and origin investigation. And this is where fire marshals come in, because fire marshals are law enforcement officers often, although not universally, but they're often law enforcement officers. And uh, they're often law enforcement officers um, whose job it is to help determine this cause and origin to do this investigation. So when they first get there, when the fire marshal first gets there, or the whether they're law enforcement or not, the person who's investigating this cause and origin uh, may not have any reason to think that this is a criminal offense. And yet they may nevertheless need to extend their authority, right? So there's, a, there's, there's cases about famous U.S. Supreme Court cases, uh, Michigan versus Tyler, uh, and then Michigan versus, uh, and Michigan versus Clifford. And Michigan versus Clifford is a 1984 case that talks about how, uh, again, firefighters are allowed to, to stay on the property without getting a warrant uh, to continue doing their sort of cause and origin investigation. But sometimes, again, they may, you know, fire investigators have to go somewhere that they haven't already entered, haven't already secured, or maybe they need to extend their control or extend their search. And when they get warrants, when somebody's getting warrants, when there isn't probable cause of a crime, but instead there's probable cause of some kind of danger that may not be criminally related, but something that caused a fire or might cause a fire, or they're concerned about some dangerous condition that just appears dangerous for some other reason, like it's poisonous or whatever, they're getting warrants usually under other parts of the Virginia Code that aren't criminal search warrants. Uh, fire investigation warrants under Title 27. Fire safety inspection warrants also under Title 27, uh, which also has hazardous material or hazardous waste warrants. Um, there might be health regulations, the code, code violations. They might be, if they're involved in code enforcement, uh, they might be getting search warrants under Title 36, which provide for building code violations. And all of those warrants, those all involve 
other code sections other than the code section the General Assembly amended in the fall and this most recent session. So those aren't search warrants under 19.256. And what that means is all the stuff that we've talked about here about it needs to be served between 8 and 5 p.m. and you need a judge or if a judge is not available, a magistrate and good cause shown as to why it's being served after 5 and blah, 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 blah. None of those rules that I talked about except for one uh, apply to all those warrants for fire safety inspection, fire investigation, hazardous materials, uh, health regulations, building code violations, all that kind of stuff. All those warrants under all those other code sections um, they don't include this language. This, this new language doesn't apply to them. And so fire marshals in general uh, can go about their business as they normally would until, unless and until they've developed probable cause of a crime. When they have to go get a criminal search warrant, well, then they got to go deal with the provisions of this code section. But of course, again, they're usually getting a criminal search warrant like in an arson investigation where there's already been a fire and they're already in the property. Uh, remember that the code section says that they don't have to get a warrant if uh, law enforcement officers have lawfully entered and secured the place to be searched and remained at such place continuously. Not all fire marshals are, and fire, not all fire investigators are law enforcement. Some are under Title 27, and when they are, uh, then you have a local ordinance usually that sets up what their authority is. If they're given the authority of law enforcement officers, uh, then their entry and their securing of the property allows them to uh, go about to bypass the need for a magistrate when it's after 5 p.m. and they've got probable cause of a criminal offense and they're trying to get a 19.256 search warrant. But if they're not law enforcement under Title 27, if their locality hasn't made them law enforcement officers and given them law enforcement powers uh, under the locality, then then they're going to have to then law enforcement, you know, police or sheriff will have to enter and secure the property. Uh, for them to not need to go to a judge first uh, or explain to the magistrate why they need to get a search warrant uh, after 5 p.m. So again, a lot of this depends upon whether or not the locality has made their fire marshals law enforcement officers, uh, which is just an interesting issue, interesting area of the law. So I hope I've answered some of the questions that you guys have had recently. Uh, thank you guys for reaching out and, and you know helping us out and helping us understand what the um, challenges are. We're going to keep trying to provide resources to you as we go through. There's a lot of new laws coming through the General Assembly. You probably heard a lot about marijuana, for example. Um, so we'll try to talk about that in an upcoming episode once we know what that's going to look like. Uh, but again, hopefully this today was helpful for you. Uh, but for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, we're on uh, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Other than that, though, that's all I got for you today. See you guys next time. Stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>